Hello and a very warm welcome to episode number six of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. I'm Paul, your host and the true crime enthusiast of the podcast, and I begin as ever, and after taking some advice last week from someone who is now off my Christmas card list, you know who you are, no I'm only joking, by trying to be a bit warmer and less formal, and so by thanking you guys for joining me. It continues to mean so much, and I hope you've all had a pleasant week. And by the way, Happy Halloween! So last week's episode was pretty successful too. There have been some great discussions about Trevelyne's case on the Facebook True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group, and it's been great hearing the feedback and listening to the theories and opinions that you guys have concerning the case. I've enjoyed joining in because it's nice to hear people's thoughts and theories about what happened. It's still a strange case, and of course, should any new information surface concerning Trevelyne's disappearance, then an update to the episode will of course be forthcoming from the podcast. Thanks once again for the many kind reviews that the podcast has been receiving on iTunes to date, as well as the continued follows that it gets on Podbean and over social media. I'm proper bowled over with them, and if I had a hat on, I'd be taking it off to you right now. I like to respond, but because I'm getting on a bit now, and I'm not as down with the kids as I'd wish, I'm still getting my head around the various hashtags, FFs and shoutouts, but I am slowly learning, and in a couple of weeks I'll be so street you won't believe. Either that or banned off Twitter. So thanks for the helpful comments. I do take them all on board, and I have yet to be trolled, so I must be doing something right. Hopefully that's not making an invite. Trolls belong under bridges, I think. But any honest reviews, as I keep saying, I appreciate honesty and constructive criticism. They're always welcomed if you guys can and wish to. As I explained last week, I'm going to start championing a couple of podcasts that I listen to. So the podcast I'm going to start with this week is a great podcast that focuses upon true crimes based in the UK and Ireland, and it's called Men's Rear. So any podcast that focuses upon cases from here is going to grab my attention more so than from those around the world. After all, the cases I cover on the True Crime Enthusiast podcast are based on these shores, so it's always good to check out some fellow pods doing the same thing to make sure through courtesy you're not covering the same cases, which I think would be a waste of time and effort, and just to see what others are doing. While some from these shows are already names I don't need to mention because they're already so massively popular and fantastic in quality, some aren't as familiar, but I'm doing my bit to change that. So I came across Men's Rear and I was impressed with what I've heard. It's professionally done but entertaining. Not all of the cases will be instantly familiar, and those that are, well, Men's Rear doesn't shy away from telling a shocking story, and they work at it. There's only 8 episodes so far, and one of these is a trilogy piece. That shows some passion and commitment to tell a story. I've written two trilogy pieces for my WordPress blog since I've started it, and believe me, they take some doing. That's a real dedication to the cause, that. The only thing is, there hasn't been an episode dropped for a few weeks, so here's hoping there is another one dropping soon. It's very highly recommended anyway. Have a listen and see what you think. So back to this week, and it's Halloween, isn't it? So in that spirit, this week for the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, I've researched and brought to you a pair of unconnected, unsolved murders that occurred on Halloween years apart. Apologies to anyone expecting anything different, but there's no knife-wielding Michael Myers involved here, no Jamie Lee Curtis limping around, and certainly no Donald Pleasant babbling like a madman. I love that movie, it's fantastic. But they're both cases that I have long considered for my blog site, and it seems appropriate to bring them here to you for this episode. 
They are, of course, obscure and almost forgotten cases, but that's what we do on the podcast, isn't it? So this week, get comfy, light your pumpkin if you haven't already, and please join the true crime enthusiast as we look back at the unsolved Halloween murders of Lillian Armstrong and Derek Green. Number 12 Goldspink Lane in the Newcastle-upon-Tyne district of Sandyford is a large property once known as Doncaster House, but today sadly one that looks quite run down and in decent need of some much-needed TLC. It's an old building and the lane looks a nice enough place to live, and I don't know whether it is occupied right now, but I do know that over the years it has had many occupants. The occupant for many years, who's probably lived in the house the longest, right up to the early years of the 1960s, was a retired school headmistress named Lillian Armstrong. Until Halloween night 1963, when Lillian was brutally murdered in her home in a crime that sparked the biggest murder hunt that Tyneside had seen for many years. 70-year-old Catherine Lillian Armstrong, known by her middle name, was your classic school ma'am. She'd been retired since 1957 and had for many years before that been the headmistress of Denton Road Junior School. She was known as a spinster, having never married and had lived alone for all of her life in Doncaster House, what was in 1963 the corner property of the lane and the current number 12. She was a very proud, very independent woman, as seemed to be the standard for that generation, and after her retirement from schooling, her life seemed to revolve around the Central Methodist Church on Newcastle's Northumberland Road, where as a devout Methodist she had been a part of the congregation for more than 40 years and had been an active part of the choir for the same length of time. Her social life consisted of very little more than regular choir practice at 7.30pm on a Thursday night, of which she was due to attend on Halloween night 1963. Lillian never made it to that choir practice. The following morning, at about 10.30am, Lillian's cousin who lived nearby, Ada Ridley, called around to Doncaster House for a routine morning visit. Knowing that Lillian was a woman of habit who was a habitual early riser, Ada became concerned when there was no answer to her repeated knocks on the front door, and that all of the curtains at the property remained closed, something which Lillian would never do. Concerned that her cousin was hurt or ill, and with a general feeling that something was amiss, Ada decided to alert police. When police arrived, uniformed officers made the decision to force their way into the property, and were confronted with a ghastly sight. Lying in the passage of her home, near the bottom of the stairs, was the body of Lillian Armstrong. She was fully clothed, wearing a dress and carpet slippers, and had a nylon stocking tied tightly around her neck. Her face and neck were also heavily bloodstained, and it was later determined at post-mortem that cause of death had not been due to strangulation, but Lillian had died from shock and blood loss due to being brutally battered and stabbed no less than 28 times about the face and neck. The scene was heavily bloodstained, and blood was found throughout the entire house. It must have been a frenzied attack, yet defence wounds on her hands suggested that Lillian had put up a struggle against her killer. A murder inquiry was immediately launched, and police searched for a motive for the horrific killing. There was no sign of forced entry to the house, and no signs of ransacking, and Lillian had not been sexually assaulted. There was no murder weapon found at the scene, no fingerprints or footprints. Police had no clear motive and no suspects, and they really didn't know where to begin. 
Sensing that this was going to be a massive inquiry, all police leave was cancelled and those already on leave were recalled to assist in the investigation. A 60-strong team of detectives began the hunt for Lillian's killer. The search got underway for the murder weapon, which was thought to have been a long-bladed instrument, and all bins, drains and grates in the area were searched in an attempt to find it, with police working on the theory that the killer would have discarded it after leaving the scene. Parks, streams and gardens were all searched for it, but to no avail. Meanwhile, house-to-house inquiries got underway, with police revealing that they planned to speak to more than 5,000 householders in the biggest house-to-house inquiry that Newcastle had ever seen. By November 4th, just three days after the murder, police had taken more than 200 statements, and detectives were still midway through the task of knocking on every door within a half-mile radius of the murder scene. But not one person spoken to claimed to have seen or heard anything suspicious, and with still no suspects or motive, by this time Scotland Yard had been called in. The Metropolitan Police Commissioner had sent Detective Superintendent Eric Reed from the Scotland Yard Murder Squad to oversee the investigation, and Reed was quick to utilise the press in an appeal for witnesses and information. In an interview at the time with the Newcastle Evening Chronicle, he revealed that there was no sign of forced entry to the property, and it was considered possible that Lillian knew her killer. He revealed that police were considering the possibility also that more than one person could have been involved in Lillian's murder, and that they were considering teens as being connected, as well as studying the files of known older male criminals who had served prison sentences for crimes utilising violence against older women. The main focus of the inquiry saw detectives trying to piece together the last hours of Lillian's life, and they had a window of about 18 hours to try to fill in. Lillian had last been seen at about 6.30pm the previous evening, where two children passing the house spotted her looking out of the window. She was expected at choir practice that night just an hour later, but she never arrived there. Was she already dead by this time? By the end of November, 50 detectives were still searching for Lillian's killer in an 18-hour working day, and by the time the inquest was held into Lillian's death at the end of January 1964, police had spoken to more than 16,000 people in the area, but the investigation had still drawn a blank, and Lillian's murder sadly remains unsolved to this day. Lillian's cousin, Ada Ridley, offered her own theories to the Newcastle Evening Chronicle about what had happened. She was convinced that teenagers were responsible for the brutal murder, and had killed Lillian after entering her home as part of a Halloween prank. She also expressed regret that Lillian had not moved from Doncaster House to live closer to her family, saying, My cousin's home was big, dark and gloomy. It got no sun. Time and time again I told her she should leave and take a flat near me. But she was very independent, and said she was not at all afraid of living alone. This is a tragic and shocking crime, and as I feel I've made clear in previous episodes, I hold a special contempt for those who commit crimes against the elderly. This is a church-going lady who had lived through two world wars, only to have her life taken in such a horrific way in a motiveless crime. It's almost a forgotten case due to the large passage of time now, and I find that quite sad really. What then can be estimated about the crime? I must stress in no way do I offer the following as definite, is purely hypothesis based on what we know. Lillian hadn't been sexually assaulted and her clothing hadn't even been disturbed, so a sexual motive seems unlikely. I would agree with this, 
An offender who has sexual assault as a motive likely commits this no matter what. There were no reported signs of ransacking and nothing had been reported as having been taken, so robbery perhaps would seem unlikely. But that is not to say that this wasn't the motive for her killer or killers being in the house. Indeed, blood was found throughout the house so this would suggest at least a cursory search of the house was made by the killer. Lillian was last seen alive at 6.30pm by two children passing her house who claimed that she was looking out of the window. She didn't make it to choir practice an hour later, so was she already dead by that time? I believe this is a very real possibility, but of course it is not definite that she was dead by 7.30. This is an era where telephones were not commonplace and Lillian may have been feeling ill and decided not to go to choir practice. Therefore, who would she call to say she wasn't attending? I believe the murder at least began as a prank or a burglary, and that this killing was committed by a youth, but more likely youths. The night of Lillian's murder was Halloween. It's dark early, and there would have been children and teenagers out trick-or-treating and generally up to devilment. We were all young once, and I'm sure some of us have played the odd prank as a youngster. It's a rite of passage, and would have been no different back in 1963. What if some teens had knocked on the door in an attempt to scare an elderly woman as a Halloween prank, then forced their way in and killed her in the heat of a struggle when she attempted to fight back? Lillian was a strong, stern woman and had the type of character that would have been instilled in a headmistress of the time. She would have been the exact type to admonish someone and tell them exactly what she thought of them. Or what if Lillian had disturbed a burglar or burglars who were taking advantage of the early darkness? Did she then challenge him or them, drawing on her years of experience as being a figure of authority, and instead of causing the perpetrator to flee, this instead angered them? But then why didn't they just flee? The possibility has struck me that Lillian may have known or recognised her killer. Perhaps they were ex-pupils. And when she revealed that she knew them, they killed her out of fear of discovery. I do believe there is more than one killer involved here, and I believe this for as follows. Firstly, why the overkill? Why do you stab someone 28 times about the face and neck and then strangle them? Is it just pure bloodlust? Or is it more than one person acting, either through fear, peer pressure or bravado, so that each equally share the culpability? Two methods of killing suggest more than one killer to me, perhaps an experimentation. Burglars also commonly work in pairs at least. The murder weapon was never found, and I do not believe it was actually disposed of. At the time, it was commonplace for boys and teenagers to habitually carry knives as a status symbol, so I believe the killer or killers took them away with them and kept them. I think that the killers were from the local area, and either knew, or certainly knew of Lillian. No one was seen leaving the area in a blind panic or hurried rush and on Halloween there would likely have been people out on the streets at that time, out taking children trick-or-treating. So whoever it was knew the area well enough to know exactly how and where to effect a quick escape without drawing attention to themselves. They had to know that an elderly woman lived alone in that house, and that there was no likelihood of breaking in to be confronted by a 20-stone son that was built like Basingstoke. It's likely that the person or persons responsible for the murder had come to police attention previously, possibly through offending as a youth. This is a level of violence in someone that would have been hard to control, so it's likely the killer or killers had offended before and after Lillian's murder. They would likely have been in police files and they were probably even spoken to during the course of the investigation. Had this crime occurred today, 
with all of the developments in forensic science, technology and offender profiling, then the possibility of a detection would be high. And of course, if evidence from the crime scene in 1963 is still in storage, then it is possible that DNA from the killer may be obtained, if not from an exact match, then through a possible familial DNA match. Due to the large passage of time, however, if Lillian's killer or killers are still alive, they would likely be about her age now. They may have families of their own, and may have pushed their horrific actions as far to the back of their mind as possible. Or they may be coming to the end of their own life, perhaps in a hospital or care home. Or they may, of course, even have died themselves by now, and managed to escape justice for Lillian's murder. Sadly, it looks likely that unless new evidence comes to fruition, deathbed confession perhaps in an attempt to clear someone's conscience, we may never know. Somebody must have known who killed Lillian Armstrong, but never said. Why? Was it out of fear or guilt? There is a strange postscript to this story. Lillian's house stood empty for a few years, and by 1973 new tenants had moved in, after the family who had lived there before them had left hurriedly, having only lived there for a couple of months. They'd left there, the new tenant said, because the house was reportedly haunted. Mrs Joan Black, the new tenant, told the Newcastle Evening Chronicle at the time, The family who were here before said the place had a ghost and was spooky. They had sensed a presence and more than once had claimed to have seen a figure stood watching out of the corner of their eye, but that there was no one there when they turned. We don't believe it's true, although the first lodger we had was convinced there was something unusual about the place. It was always at the bottom of the stairs. Does Lillian still occupy her home, at least in some capacity? We skip forward now, 17 years and nearly 300 miles south of Newcastle-upon-Tyne, to the city of Bristol. Brandon Hill in Bristol is a hill relatively close to the city centre, and it's dominated by the Cabot Tower, which was built to commemorate John Cabot's voyage from Bristol to Newfoundland in 1497. Fact for you history trivia vultures, it is possible that Brandon Hill is the oldest municipal public space in the country, although that is straight from Wikipedia, so if you believe it or not, completely up to yourselves. I won't lose much sleep if it's right or wrong, to be honest. Anyway, today, it consists of a vast, steep park and a beautiful and popular two-hectare nature reserve that is run by the Avon Wildlife Trust, who have their headquarters next to it. Two hectares, I can't really grasp the size of that, I don't think I'd like to mow it though because it sounds loads. The Trust established their quarters here in 1980 and it was here on Brandon Hill on the morning of Halloween 1980 that a nurse walking to work made a shocking and gruesome discovery. She was walking through Brandon Hill Park to begin an early morning shift at the nearby hospital when out of the darkness she came across the body of a man lying face down on one of the footpaths that run crisscross through the park. He was lying in a large pool of blood and had clearly visible and obviously catastrophic head injuries. The nurse, utilising her medical training, felt for a pulse but sadly to no avail. The man was clearly dead and had been for some time. She hurried to get help and soon police and an ambulance were at the scene. By morning light, it was soon established by police just how savage an attack the dead man had suffered and they believed that robbery was the motive albeit robbery that had gone horribly wrong. There were several bank and credit cards scattered around the body, and a few metres away was a discarded and heavily bloodstained Stanfield traffic cone. 
which was later to be determined as having been the murder weapon. The dead man's jacket had also been torn from his body, and the inner pocket lining had been ripped. No money was found on the dead man's person. But before any murder investigation could get underway, police had to establish who the dead man was. He was before long identified as 39-year-old Derek Grain, an aerospace contractor that had been working on a secondment to British Aerospace in Filton. Derek was from Hertfordshire and had only been in Bristol just over two months. He had no permanent home there and had been staying at the Unicorn Hotel on Bristol's Prince Street while he worked at Filton. He was a distinctive looking man with light coloured hair but a distinctive dark dyed black beard and people who knew him described him as a bit of a loner. Being a loner does not mean that you're not well liked though and those who knew him described Derek as a kind and cheerful person, one who was conscientious and who would go out of his way to do somebody a good turn. Like many people, Derek enjoyed a drink, and it was hinted at that he was rather a heavy drinker, but his workmates and supervisor claimed that even if this was the case, Derek was not the sort of person who would court trouble and become involved in brawls in pubs or clubs. As a shift worker through his job as an aerospace engineer, Derek was not limited to going out just at the weekends, and so on Wednesday 30th of October, he had headed out into the pubs and clubs of Bristol City Centre for some drinks, as he had a couple of days free. Because of his distinctive beard, detectives found that they were able to trace his last known movements that evening because people remembered seeing him. It was established that Derek had spent the evening drinking heavily in several pubs around the area of Park Street, which is relatively close to Brandon Hill and about a mile away from the hotel where Derek had been staying. He had visited at least two nightclubs that evening, Vicky's and Curves, which were both situated on Park Street at the time, and he was remembered in at least the latter for his spending, paying for nearly each drink he had with a different note and making a show of having at least 70 to £80 in his pocket, which was a considerable sum of money back in 1980, but it's a standard night out though, now I'm sure. Derek had finished his night up in Curve's nightclub and was remembered leaving alone at about 2 o'clock in the morning and was seen heading towards the Brandon Hill area, which was the opposite direction to his hotel, and which was one of the mysteries concerning the case that detectives could never get to the bottom of. Why was he heading that way? Somewhere on this journey, he met his killer. The post-mortem revealed that Derek had been attacked from behind and battered to death with a sand-filled traffic cone, which had probably been taken by his killer from the site of some roadworks that were being undertaken relatively near to the entrance to the park that Derek had walked into. It was also established that his killer had kicked him several times in the head and chest as he lay dying. This was the opinion of the pathologist, who detailed the numerous skull fractures and lacerations that Derek had suffered. But why had this happened? A search of the park got underway for another possible murder weapon, but all that was ever found was the heavily bloodstained traffic cone, and this was all police could glean from the scene. There were no fingerprints, and so much blood that it would have been impossible to determine if any of it had come from the killer or killers if they had perhaps injured themselves in the attack. Scores of people were traced who had been out that evening in the pubs and clubs that Derek had visited, which was a mammoth task due to the time of year it was. There were several Halloween celebrations on at the time, and more people than normal were out and about in the city. Detectives were convinced that the motive was robbery, and that Derek could have been set upon by more than one person. Giving an interview to the Bristol Evening Post at the time of the murder, 
the officer leading the hunt, Detective Inspector Brian Theobald, said, There is a possibility that more than one person was involved in this. I am having a second examination of the scene done, and I am pretty confident that the assailants were spattered with blood, at the very least. I'm pretty satisfied that the motive was robbery. They used an awful lot of violence. It was a particularly vicious, brutal murder. Despite 40 detectives working on a massive inquiry for many months, and having been able to impressively piece together Derek's last known movements, that was as close as they ever got to finding his killer. Not one witness was found who had heard a struggle, or who had seen someone fleeing the murder scene. Derek was not married or in a relationship and had no children, so there was no jealous lover or ex, and he was not found to have had any known enemies or to have been in conflict or dispute with anyone, nor was he found to have been involved in anything criminal or disreputable. It seemed that the only possible explanation was that someone had followed him into the park with the intention of robbing him in an opportunistic crime, and things went tragically much further. Avon and Somerset Police have the case marked as active with regular reviews, but this has long been a cold case now. It is an extremely savage murder, and whilst researching this I thought about how brutal a weapon a sand-filled traffic home would have been. It's not a weapon someone would consider, but it's surprisingly weighty and it would have caused extremely catastrophic head wounds. So what then were the possible motives for Derek's murder? Firstly, had Derek argued with someone that evening? He was drinking heavily and would soon have become intoxicated. Did he spill a drink over someone whilst in this state? Or nudge the wrong person or upset or offend someone? And did this lead to a row? Was he followed out of the nightclub and attacked for this reason, and the money taken from him in a purely opportunistic act? Police reckoned that about 50 to £60 pounds had been taken from Derek's jacket. Would that amount of money which was a large sum at the time, proved too much for anyone to resist taking, even a thug with causing harm on the mind rather than robbery. There was nothing reported to suggest this was the case, however. Derek was not reported as being having been involved in an argument with anyone, and it is likely that if he had, other clubgoers would have remembered the verbal altercation that always goes hand in hand with acts such as these. Why was Derek walking the opposite way to his hotel? It is of course possible that he was so drunk that he had no concept he was walking the wrong way. I remember many years ago a friend of mine when I was in the military left the local nightclub one night, bit three sheets to the wind, and fell over quite heavily immediately outside it. So he then got up, dusted himself off, and in his confusion walked a good mile in the opposite direction towards his home because he was so legless. So it does happen, and if Derek had been heavily drinking, this is not only a possible reason, but a very probable one. It's equally possible that someone had noticed him lurching about drunkenly and followed him into the park, then attacked and killed him in an orgy of violence in an impromptu and opportunistic crime. But why the need to kill him at all? Surely you can overpower and rob a very drunk man without stopping to batter him so badly that his head was almost completely obliterated. The killer must have had to take the traffic cone in with him, or them, so were well prepared to use it to at least incapacitate Derry, and feeling the weight in it, they must have known that it would in the least seriously injure anyone who was struck with it. Perhaps Derrick was hit and attempted to fight back, and his killer continued raining blows to silence him. It is likely, 
I know this sounds like I'm stating the obvious, that Derek's killer, or killers of course, were violent offenders. I mean that more in the context that they will have had violence in their past and probably after Derek's murder, and will have likely come to police attention because of this. As with Lillian's killer, this will be someone in the files. You do not commit such a savage murder, get away with it, and then never offend again, unless you're caught, incapacitated, or you die. I believe it's also likely there was more than one killer and the persons were local to the area. This is a crime that has the feel of being down to more than one person's responsibility. They had to know the park well enough to feel comfortable in attacking someone there without risk of being disturbed and they had to be able to make an easy egress too. Did Derek's killers see him flashing his cash in one of the pubs or clubs and then formulate a plan to rob him? Or was this someone, fueled by alcohol, who saw red and brutally battered a man to death over a minor slight or a spilled drink? How many savage killings are caused because they're alcohol fueled when the perpetrator isn't thinking clearly and reacts fatally in a fit of drunken rage? The level of violence suggests that this is someone who has gone too far in their actions because they're fueled by alcohol, and how must they have felt the next day when they sobered up and had to face up to what they'd done? As is commonplace with so many historical unsolved cases such as the two we have covered here, frustratingly both took place long before many of the scientific advancements in detection such as the establishment of DNA profiling and the commonplace availability today of CCTV coverage and mobile phones. There is also no suspect list, no artist impressions available that may even years later jog a person's memory. There are no witnesses and no forensic evidence or clues left by the killers in each case. Realistically, there would seem to be slim if any chances of either case being solved now barring a confession where someone's conscience finally gets the better of them. It is a realistic prospect that the killers of both Lillian and Derek are still alive and still walking free. Although if this were the case, they would be advancing in years themselves now. I also believe that somebody out there in each case has held crucial information about the killer or killers, but has never come forward, perhaps out of guilt, fear, or misplaced loyalty. Somebody surely remembers a night where someone came home with their clothes covered in blood, and must have noticed a change in that person for a time afterwards, or some sort of weight hanging over them, but said nothing. Perhaps that still pricks at someone's conscience to this day, but especially more so each Halloween. What do you guys think concerning the cases of Lillian Armstrong and Derek Grain? I thought both were shocking crimes. I made my feelings pretty clear about criminals who target the elderly a few weeks ago when discussing Kenneth Erskine. They are nothing but cowardly and scum, subhuman scum. To kill someone in what should be the sanctuary of their own home is carnage. But to equally attack an innocent person from behind is equally cowardly. And to kill someone so horrifically in both cases is pure bloodlust. Both are crimes where the perpetrator needs to have been taken off the streets, and one can only hope that they were at some point, at least for a significant time for an unconnected crime. As usual, the discussion thread concerning Lillian's and Derek's cases and this episode will be up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast discussion group on Facebook. I'm very eager to hear what you guys think about what we've covered today. Because it's Halloween this week, and again because it's an open forum, This week also, there'll be another thread about some of the scariest things that have ever happened to you on Halloween. Or ever, really. 
It's not date specific. I mean, please don't not tell about a shark attack you survived because it happened on November the 1st, for example. Please come and join in and share your tales. Or again, any suggestions for a UK case for the podcast to cover? That's what the group's for. I'm sure I shall catch you on the usual social media. And as always here on the podcast, I'm always the true crime enthusiast or a slight variation on that. But details are up on the episode show notes. Look out for the accounts of Lillian's and Derek's cases posted up in my WordPress blog in the coming weeks. If you're not familiar with it, have a wild guess and see if you can think what it may be titled. I hope you found this episode of the True Crime Enthusiast podcast interesting. These are the first unsolved cases covered on the podcast so far, and it's the unsolved that I focused so much upon when I first started my blog last year. I don't think either is a massively known case, and I hope what you've heard has intrigued at least some people to look a bit further into forgotten and obscure cases. That's my particular passion, and I find it personally very rewarding to be able to research and bring cases such as Lillian's and Derek's to an audience, because as I keep saying, no case is worth more than another, and no one deserves to be forgotten. So it's been my pleasure to have been able to have researched them and brought them to you for this week's episode. I'll catch you next week for another case covered by the True Crime Enthusiast podcast. And trust me, you don't want to miss next week's because it's a great case. I'm still Paul. I'm still the True Crime Enthusiast. And I'm wishing you all a fab week. And I shall speak to you again soon. Thanks for listening in. And I'll catch you guys later. Goodbye for now.